name is Allison Solub, and this is Read Japanese Literature. In 15 to 20 minute episodes, we'll be looking at bite sized chunks of the history of Japanese fiction and some closer looks at some of its most famous works. We'll also be talking about the history of Japan for some context. We won't be talking about poetry or drama, we won't be talking about manga. But important works of narrative fiction like the tale of Genji, Japanese ghost stories, up to contemporary writers like Mieko Kawakami and Haruki Murakami. We're going to start with some of the oldest works written in Japanese. All of the works we discuss are available in translation, so you can read along if you want, and you can find links to books and resources at readjapaneseliterature.com. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the oldest surviving written texts in Japan, the Kojiki, gods having sex, the founding of an imperial dynasty, and some of the origins of World War II. The Kojiki was written or compiled in the 710s. That's very soon after the Japanese started to figure out a way to write their own language. But it takes us back to the very beginning of Japanese history. It's probably the most purely Japanese book. It shows the least influence of Chinese culture. And we'll talk more about the Chinese influence on Japanese literature in an upcoming podcast. In three books, the Kochi gives us the Japanese creation myth, tells us about the founding of an imperial dynasty, and it includes the semi legendary history of Japan's first 33 emperors. It ends on the ascension of Japan's first female emperor about the year 600 CE. We're going to take a look at each of these three books. But why are we still reading the Kojiki? First of all, it's really old. And there are minimal signs of the influence of other cultures. It shows maybe what Japanese culture looked like before the introduction of Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism from other parts of Asia. It's one of the oldest examples of written Japanese prose, and it's one of the oldest examples of written Japanese, period. The Kojiki also contains some of the most important foundational stories of Japanese society and culture. It is the oldest recorded text about the practice of Shinto. I should mention for a minute what Shinto is. In an excellent explanatory commentary by Zach Davison in his translation of Shigeru Mizuki's manga Tonomonogatari, he explains. The essence of Shinto this way. Quote, Think of Japan as being covered by a layer of numinous, invisible energy. It flows through everything and gathers more intensely in certain natural points. An ancient tree, for example, or an unusual rock might anchor and amplify this energy. Like any natural resource, say water or fire, This energy is neither good nor bad. The fire that warms can also burn. And just like fire can be trapped in a hearth, so can this energy be harnessed. Shinto shrines gather and focus this energy. In a very small nutshell, that is Shinto. Today, 
Most Japanese think of Shinto more as an aspect of being Japanese than as a religious practice. Buddhism and Confucianism came to Japan and both profoundly shaped the way Shinto is practiced. Today, 90% of Japanese people would say that they practice Shinto, but Shinto and Buddhism also have a strongly syncretic relationship. They are related to each other in Japan, and you can practice both at the same time. About 75% of Japanese people would also tell you that they are Buddhist. And we'll talk more about Buddhism in Japan in an upcoming podcast. Finally, we're still reading the Kojiki because of its political importance, especially during periods of rising nationalism in Japan. Just like ancient Greek or medieval history have been tools of nationalists in the English-speaking world, starting in the 18th century and building through the Meiji Restoration, and we'll talk about all of this in later podcasts, state Shintoism justified emperor worship. And so it was a serious contributing factor to Japan's role in World War II. Before about 1700, Japanese people don't seem to have given much religious importance to the Kojiki. And earlier scholars usually regarded the Kojiki stories as allegories. So we won't be talking about anything in the Kojiki today as practiced religion. One of the Kojiki is the volume of the Age of the Gods. It ostensibly takes place during the Jomon period of Japanese history. And this is the oldest or earliest period of Japanese history, starting about 12,000 BCE, or possibly even earlier, lasting up until about 800 BCE. So this is a long period. But elsewhere in the world, this is the age of the Egyptian pharaohs, of Mycenaean Greece, of the Olmec civilization in pre-Columbian Mexico. We're talking about the period that includes the writing of the Epic of Gilgamesh, all the way up to the writing of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Archaeological evidence suggests that in Japan, a hunter-gatherer people inhabited Japan and reached a considerable degree of cultural complexity. But, and this is really important, there was no writing system in Jomon, Japan. The author of the Kojiki is writing down the story almost 1,600 years after the end of this prehistorical period. So the volume of the Age of the Gods opens with three kami. Uh, kami is often translated into English as gods for lack of a better translation. So these kami came into existence at the beginning of the universe. Then follow seven generations of deities who more or less appear. And this leads up to the creation of Japan's first anthropomorphic gods, the first gods that look like human beings, Izanami, which means she who beckoned, and Izanagi, which means he who beckoned. The story of Izanami and Izanagi is the most interesting and probably the most important story in the Kojiki, and you can find their story just in the first couple of pages. Because they're the first anthropomorphized gods, Izanami and Izanagi are also Japan's first sexed and gendered gods. After their creation, 
Izanami and Izanagi quickly note that their bodies have some key differences. And I'll be quoting here from Gustav Holt's translation. Now the mighty one Izanagi turned to the mighty one Izanami and questioned his sister, saying, How is your body formed? She replied, saying, My body is empty in one place. And so the mighty one Izanagi proclaimed, My body sticks out in one place. I would like to thrust the part of my body that sticks out into the part of your body that is empty and fill it up to birth lands. How does birthing them in this way sound to you? The mighty one Izanami replied, saying, That sounds good. And so Izanami and Izanagi have sex. And then they give birth to the Japanese archipelago and many of the kami behind its more significant natural phenomena. Eventually, Izanami dies, giving birth to the fire god, and then Izanagi kills his newborn son in a fit of rage and grief. Izanami goes to the land of the dead, to Yomi, and Izanagi follows to search for her, and you'll hear here echoes of Orpheus and Eurydice, of Persephone, of Celtic stories about the Fae. So Izanagi goes to the underworld, and it's too late. Izanami has already eaten food from the underworld. She cannot be rescued. She's also made Izanagi promise not to look at her. Of course, he does, and he discovers that his wife has become a rotting corpse. Understandably, he runs away and seals the entrance to the underworld, to Yomi, and, quote, as they stood there with a the boulder between them, they declared themselves divorced. And I should note briefly that divorce has never had the same cultural stigma in Japan as it has had in most Christian countries. Enraged by this entire series of events, Izanami vows she will kill a thousand people a day. Izanagi counters he will build 1,500 birthing huts every day to thwart her. And this is the origin of population growth and where the Japanese people eventually come from. Izanagi is grossed out by his trip to the underworld and he's covered in filth. So he rushes to a river to purify himself. And purification remains an important part of Shinto practice. When he washes the filth off his body, the filth turns into new kami, including the sun goddess Amaterasu, which means heaven shining. Amaterasu is especially important because her grandson eventually descends from heaven to found Japan's imperial line. Book one continues from the descent of Amaterasu's heavenly grandson and tells the story of his family up to the birth of Japan's purported first emperor, Emperor Jimmu. Book two takes place in the next period of Japanese history, the Yaoyoi period. And this lasts from about 800 BCE to about 300 CE, Globally, this is more or less the period of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire and the invention of the Mayan calendar. Archaeological evidence suggests that there is a population change, a genetic population change. There's an influx of farmers from continental Asia. You can read this as Korea. 
And these new people overwhelmed the hunter-gatherer Jomon people. Historically, a strong anti-Korean stigma in some parts of Japanese society has made this conclusion a little controversial. But very recent genetic studies have more or less confirmed that the Yaoyoi people, and therefore most of their descendants, most Japanese, came from Korea. These farmers brought with them new technologies, new cultural advances, especially how to grow rice. The Yaoyoi period is also the period in which the first Chinese ambassador arrives in Japan, and notably, there is still no way to write down Japanese. Book two opens with Emperor Jimmu, that first legendary emperor, ascending the throne. It records Jimmu's conquests and ends with Japan's purported 15th emperor, Emperor Ojin. That roughly coincides with the end of the Yaoyoi period. Book two still references mythology very often. And so the historical information is highly suspect. Book three covers Japan's 16th through 33rd emperors. It more or less overlaps with the Yamato period, and that's about 300 to about 710 CE. We're talking about the rise of classical Mayan culture, the fall of Roman and Egyptian empires, and the beginnings of Islam. In Japan, during the Yamato period, most of the country was gradually unified under a single kingdom, and the leading patriarchs of different tribes together formed an aristocracy and an imperial dynasty. Rulers of the Yamato state looked back to Amaterasu, to her grandson, to Emperor Jimmu, and said that these are the foundations of our imperial line. And that imperial line established by Yamato society is now the oldest continuing monarchical house in the entire world. Book three is mostly a list of emperors, and it ends with Emperor Suiko in the 1590s. Emperor Suiko is a woman, and we know that female emperors weren't that uncommon in early Japan, especially before the importation of Confucianism, which is a Chinese tradition and a patriarchal one. The preface to the Kojiki tells us it was composed or compiled by a man named Oh no Yasumaro in the early 8th century, and that's about 100 years after the Kojiki ends. The end of the Aoyoi period and the writing of the Kojiki marks a vital milestone. Now, finally, the Japanese are beginning to be able to record their own language in writing. The Kojiki itself is written in a more or less improvised system using Chinese characters for their sounds rather than their meaning. So we'll discuss the Japanese writing system and how it opened up new opportunities for Japanese writing in an upcoming podcast. spend just a minute talking about gender in early Japan and in the Kojiki. 
In the mythologies familiar to most Westerners, so we're talking mostly about Greek and Roman mythologies, as well as Chinese mythology, the sun deity is a man. Amaterasu is not. Amaterasu is a woman. She still takes on more typical patriarchal features. Sometimes she's portrayed as a virgin goddess, although sometimes she has a husband. Regardless, she has five sons. And again, that's important because she founds the imperial line. Nevertheless, she is a woman, and in some ways that makes her unusual. There's some debate about what her gender says about early Japan. Maybe it simply says or confirms that early rulers of Japan have been female. Maybe even prehistorically, the leaders were typically female. And we know there certainly were politically important women in early Japan. There's also the idea that maybe Amaterasu reinforces the influence of priestesses, female shamans in Japan, before the introduction of Chinese culture. In Chinese histories, there are many accounts of women with political or religious power in Japan. The earliest account of Japan, of which we have any real historical relic, is of a Japan ruled by a priestess and her household. This is the Japan encountered by the first Chinese ambassadors. A Chinese history describes that from 150 to 190 CE, quote, the country of Wa, and the country of Wa is Japan, was in a state of great confusion, war, and conflict raging on all sides. For a number of years, there was no ruler. Then a woman named Pimiko appeared. Remaining unmarried, she occupied herself with magic and sorcery and bewitched the populace. This presumably male chronicler has fallen back on that favorite accusation of men who are threatened by a woman with power. She's a witch. But many historians agree that women must have held important shamanistic positions and were said to actually be possessed by kami. Chinese imports eventually changed Japanese culture. Robert L. Wood, who is a professor emeritus at USC, makes a case that Japan experienced what he calls a patriarchal revolution. And this patriarchal revolution coincided with the introduction of Chinese ideas. Taoism, which is a dualistic tradition, including male-female. Confucianism, which is a patriarchal tradition. There's a shared generative force that passes down through the male line. And so Confucianism gives pride of place to the family's oldest male offspring. And even imported Buddhism had, in some ways, a very patriarchal practice. The historical Buddha we know resisted creating an order of nuns. And we'll talk more about Buddhism in a later podcast. The Kojiki presumably draws on an older tradition that predates Elwood's patriarchal revolution, even though it was written after the importation of Chinese culture, it's supposed to be stories passed down from a much more ancient Japan. And I should note this kind of patriarchal revolution isn't at all unique to Japan. The same sort of thing happened in England, where abbesses with spiritual and even political power lost their position after the Norman Conquest. 
If you want to read along with us, I recommend the Kojiki, most recently translated by Gustav Holt, who I've used as a reference and quoted today. There's also a children's book recently released that leaves out some of the more scandalous bits, the Kojiki, The Birth of Japan by Kazumi Wilds. You can find links to these books and other resources at readjapaneseliterature.com. I don't know that I would recommend reading the entire Kojiki. To me, book one is definitely the most interesting, the story of Izanagi and Izanami, and then also the story of Amaterasu and her brother, Susanna No'o. If you do read the entire Kojiki, be prepared for a lot of kami with really complicated names. My personal favorite is a kami simply named Awesome Indeed. For a more modern take, you can check out The Goddess Chronicle by Natsuo Kirino, translated into English by Rebecca Copeland. The Goddess Chronicle looks at the story from Izanami's perspective. How would she feel being abandoned in the underworld? For more on the history of Japan, there's a great podcast by historian Isaac Meyer called The History of Japan. And next time, we'll take a closer look at Chinese Buddhism in Japan and the world's first novel, The Tale of Genji. The story of a paragon of beauty and virtue with a severe Oedipus complex. If you want to offer feedback or suggestions, tweet us at at ReadJapaneseLit. A special thank you to Adam Solove for production assistance, and thank you to producer Kaim, K-H-A-I-M, for today's music, and you can find him at at Kahai Music and Kahai Music.com. Bye.